Hello! You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. I'm Julia. And I'm Michelle, and we'll be your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. Today's show is about social justice and tech. We have lots of cool stuff to share with you, so let's hop to it. First, we have Shout's own Kendra Cowley interviewing Kathleen Oliver about Go Queer, a locative media game slash experiment about the queer history of the city created by Professor Maureen Engel in the Digital Humanities Department here at the U of A. Let's hear what Kendra found out. I'm Kathleen Oliver. I'm an RA for the Go Queer Project with Dr. Maureen Engel. So can you tell us a little bit about the Go Queer Project? So Go Queer is a locative history mobile app, um, which means that it tracks your movements through the city and will alert you when you've come across a piece of queer history. Great. And so um, what are some examples of queer history that one might encounter when playing this game? So the events range from, I believe, the 1980s until more recently with like 2010 or so. You'll come across quite a few bars, um, especially in the downtown area. You might also come across some old hotels where queer people used to feel safe to meet in the lounges. Or you might find some places where they used to meet up for cruising, um, such as down by the valley. A lot of our material comes from the Queer Edmonton bus tour, which was run by Darren Hagen during the Pride Week. Uh, And he would just load up the bus and drive around downtown showing off various places. Um, so we relied on a lot of that, but we've also looked through some archives and some newspaper articles. So would that tour, say, have revealed these um, cruising sites in Edmonton, or is there a particular way in which this knowledge is, is being shared or, or passed down through you know, relationships or, or other means of um, knowledge and memory, like maintenance? I think a lot of these places do get passed down through the community and aren't formally written down. Um, especially with cruising spots. You might find a few articles about more activity in certain areas, like published in the Edmonton Journal, but that doesn't really give you the whole story. What were some of the sites that really um, stood out to you? So one of the ones I think is most important is the Pisces Spa House, which was a bathhouse where queer men and men who have sex with men would meet. And one night the Edmonton police raided it and arrested all the men as foundings of a body house, um, which subsequently outed a lot of men and ruined their lives. Um, But what's interesting about that scenario is that it was a gay man who called the police in the first place. So the whole instance sort of raises issues of internalized homophobia that we run into in a few other spots, um, such as maybe a bar's name that is called Secrets, or Um, Some other threads that get picked up are just this idea of the morality squad coming in to sort of police queer bodies. Wow. So, I mean, as somebody who grew up in Edmonton, somebody who self-identifies as queer, a lot of these stories that you're sharing are uh, new to me. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this this history of resistance, because I think we hear a lot about, um, we hear about Toronto, we hear about New York, we hear about San Francisco, we hear about these big cities where there's this um, huge pushback against police raids and and violence against queer and trans people. 
And I imagine that is also part of our history um, here in Edmonton. Yeah, so one of the biggest things that happened in Edmonton was the Delwyn Vrend case, where he was fired from the King's University for being gay. And um, at the time, it wasn't protected under the Human Rights Act. And so he took Alberta to court um, through a series of trials, and it took a couple of years for him to win the case, but he did eventually win, which was a huge success. So can you walk us through uh, what it would be like to actually play this game? So there's a few ways that you can come across these locations, either through serendipitous sort of stumbling upon it, um, or by, you know, prior knowledge, if you happen to know that something used to exist on the corner, or that this bar used to be a gay bar, um, you can certainly go there and you might find something out that way. But we've also built in a hint feature that will guide you towards the location. Um, and we've also, when we're writing these entries, we've also put in a few hints or clues within them that might uh, encourage you to go exploring on your own. So if we mention maybe the downtown cruising circuit, you might feel compelled to walk around downtown for a little while to find out where these spaces are. And in that way, the game sort of asks you to think or move or see the city in a queer way. So sort of thinking about, you know, what kind of spaces would a queer person have looked for. Um, I think on one face of it, we are capturing the queer history of Edmonton that is otherwise scattered in archives that are relatively inaccessible or are just not collected in any way that a user could easily in interact with them. So on that level, we've done a great job curating these events for you. That was Kendra Cowley and Kathleen Oliver discussing Go Queer. That was awesome. Michelle, isn't cool people doing cool things just the best? It's totally the best. Should we hear from some more people doing cool things? And how? All right, let's get to it then. Next on our program is an interview from Shouts Hung Yi Gong. Hong Yi had a chance to talk to Sandy Hoy this week about the Métis script database he's been working on with Gabrielle Lafontaine, who is also a contributor at Shout. Let's hear from cool people Hong Yi and Sandy. Hi everyone, this is Hong Yi Gong reporting for CJSR. I'm here with Sandy Hoy, who just presented um, the Métis script database on the Forum for Information Professionals, actually. Sandy, could you introduce yourself and review your presentation? Hi, uh, my name is Sandy Hoy. Um, I've recently finished the coursework for my MLIS at SLIS. Um, and I kind of originally got interested in archives through taking a couple classes through the Archive Society of Alberta. I also, over the summer, interned down at the Smithsonian Archives in Washington, D.C., where I worked with their Digital Services Division. And now I'm currently working at the Métis Archival Project where I'm working for Professor Frank Tuff, helping him out with some database design. And uh, what I've been working on recently is uh, uh, migrating the script database to from FileMaker 10 to FileMaker 17. Uh, and so for the past month or so, I've been cleaning the data, getting it ready, and uh, we've also been uh, designing a new database for the script applications, and we're, we're going to be trying to use a relational database to display the information, display and store the information. Okay, this sounds a little bit too technical for me. Can you elaborate on that? Like, um, how can, for example, how can a public member like me 
do with the database? Well, so what the eventual plan is to do is to uh, take all the data that we have stored in our script database and upload it onto the Métis National Council's historical online database. And once that's been done, uh, any user can go online and search for script applications, census documents, or Manitoba affidavits. So if a regular member from the public wanted to access the data, they'd just have to visit the Métis National Council's historical online database, which is in uh, development right now. Um, it was taken down a couple of years ago, but we're getting it back up and running. Uh, but all, all the data that uh, the Métis archival project has uh, transcribed will eventually go up online on that website. And when, once that's been done, you'll be able to, to search for the, the images on there. So can you tell me more about um, the Métis script? Why are they important? So Métis script is important because it's got a lot of genealogical information on the applications, um, as well as uh, information about where people were from, where they've moved to, who they've married. Um, it's got all information about their people's children, their grandparents. And so on one document, there's all this uh, genealogical information that people can use to eventually apply for their Métis citizenship. And I also noticed that there are already Métis script records within um, the Library and Archives Canada. So I was just wondering if there is like any other similar database here in Alberta. Well, so Frank's database actually uses the script applications that are, are housed at the Library and Archives Canada. And uh, what's, what's different about Frank's database is that uh, he's, he's transcribed all of the information. So there's, there's uh, more, more fields that people can search and more names that have been transcribed from the documents that people are able to search. So that's the, the big difference between Library and Archives Canada and uh, the Métis National Council's online database. Can you give us an example? Um, so on Library and Archives Canada's website, typically there's only one name associated with an application. Uh, and with Frank's database, uh, there can be upwards of 10, 20 people associated to, with a, a single application. And so instead of lucking out and uh, searching for the, the particular individual that's associated with the application on Library and Archives Canada's website, uh, you could search for the 10 or 20 people. Also, the interesting thing about Frank's database is it has, uh, or I guess Frank has transcribed uh, a lot of the geographical information as well, too. So you can search for a document uh, based on a, a location or a date range or someone's last name, for example. That's really interesting. So you said people can use this database to apply for their Métis citizenship. And I was wondering, like, uh, what's your thought on the value of creating this data database and preserving the Métis script in the context of today and especially in Alberta? 
Well, so I guess the, the value is uh, that uh, Frank's database makes this information more accessible and easier to find, which means that people who are trying to apply for Métis citizenship can access this information more easily. One of the other kind of interesting things about uh, Frank's database is that uh, he actually has a complete set of color imagery for all these documents. Um, uh, LAC's website doesn't have everything available online, and a lot of them are black and white microfilmed copies of the documents. And so it's kind of one of the, the benefits of Frank's uh, website and database is that you can access the complete set of color imagery for these script applications. I'm just curious, why is it so important to have the color copies instead of the black and white one? Uh, they're a lot easier to read, and uh, um, when the, the documents were originally created, they used a bunch of different kinds of colors of ink and, and pencil, and so the, uh, the microfilmed copies of the applications are, are actually pretty difficult to read. Uh, Frank uh, photographed uh, the applications uh, in color so that they're easier to read, and they've all been enhanced and color corrected. Uh, so even even the applications that are written in pencil, for instance, are, are a lot easier to read uh, if, if you actually wanted to look at the application and, and check it out yourself. So thank you for sharing your time with us, Sandy. You're welcome. Very cool stuff. The coolest. <laughs> the next segment we have for you is from Gabrielle LaFontaine, who went to visit the FemLab space here on campus for their exhibition, Repurposed, an exploration of digital art and activism. Gabrielle interviewed the artists about how digital arts and activism cross over. Caitlin Grant is the curator of the most recent exhibition in the FemLab gallery. Repurposed includes works by graduate students across multiple disciplines it explores the continued advancement of technology in the digital world and its creation of new and exciting ways to explore art and artistic expression. Pieces for the show explore the connections between technology and ideas of digital-based social justice and highlights how academia and art can work together to challenge expectations and create new venues for discussion. The FemLab space is open to the public and is located at Assiniboia Hall. Repurposed runs until the middle of April and is a welcoming space for everyone. While at the show, I had the chance to speak with three artists. Uh, so I'm Skylar Palm. I'm a digital humanities first year student in the um, program here at the U of A. Uh, so this piece, um, it actually came out of the digital humanities um, intensity challenge, which is something that the students do, um, the new co cohorts do at the beginning of the, of the year. Basically, each of the days, um, one of the professors from the program kind of comes in, introduces their area of research, and then gives us a challenge for the day. And so we were posed a question. Uh, well, we were given two, um, two pieces to look at. One was The Laugh of the Medusa by Helen Sichu. Uh, the other was What is Post-Digital by Florian Kramer. And we were asked, um, where is the question here? What would a post-feminist, post-digital Ecclesia Feminine look like? And so... My answer to that question was this big block of text in the middle. Um, so fundamentally what this is about to me is that um, my gender is very messy. So I consider myself gender fluid, uh, non-binary, 
though definitely leaning towards male and biologically male. Um, so it exists somewhere in the intermediary, basically. So this was kind of an attempt at certainty, was this big block of text. But everything around it is just really an exploration of uh, the uncertainty and how um, messy and fractured and fluid that all that exploration all is. So. And next we have Kendra Cowley and Katerina Barnes speaking about their sonic map titled Unsettling Colonial Mapping, Sonic Spatial Representations of a Muscawachiwakahin. And here's a clip of how their map sounds. I am a digital humanities student. I also on this, do some work in web development and graphic design. Um, um, do you want to tell me about the installation that you and Kendra worked on? So the too long didn't read version is it's an auditory map. So it's literally just a soundscape pretty much. Um, we focused on the North Campus. And so what that meant was either finding like archival sounds or collecting sounds from that other people had collected and mediating them and editing them or collecting some of our own sounds. So for example, that meant there was days when I was walking around with an auditory, like an audio recorder trying to, you know, pick up my footsteps or pick up sounds of the bus loop in the LRT station mm -hmm. or just the ambient sound in like sub at a busy lunch hour. Okay. And so we compiled them together to kind of make this map of campus of, and it's just sound like there's no there's no visual to it and the idea is that maps can be a very colonial creation like it's they're they're drawn by the powers that be at, mm -hmm. at a certain point in time but there's a lot that's not accounted for in a place mm -hmm. um, there's sounds there's feelings would you say it's another kind of value or highlight or benefit of sound maps as compared to like traditional visual maps I think it's even just the opportunity to think about the space we are in and navigate and how we create it and mediate it. Just even thinking about, you know, the memories you might have connected to a place and how that affects how you experience that place. Yeah. Yeah. I think just on that note of like perceiving space, I think one of the things that both Kat and I do and that I know a lot of folks on campus do is we move through a lot of the world wearing our headphones. And so we curate our own sonic landscape on the daily, often as an escape from all the things which are sounding around us. Mm -hmm. And so this really forced us to, to take off our headphones and really listen, which um, one of the scholars that, or one of the artists slash scholars um, that we reference, her name is Paulina Livieros. And one of the things that she says is, everything around us is sounding, like through vibration, through movement. Uh, some things are audible, some things are not, but everything is sounding. And when you open yourself up to that, you're opening yourself up to this incredible sen like sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true. And honestly, for me, especially someone who has ADD, that can be super overwhelming. But I think that when we open ourselves up to one, 
way of like feeling an environment that also opens us up to other ways mm -hmm. of feeling and being in an environment. And so for Pauline, um, kinetic awareness and sonic awareness were not separate from each other. Um, the way that you feel it in your body is connected to the way that you hear it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's very true. So I For sure. Um, was there anything surprising that came up when you were doing this project? Like, was there, for example, like a really interesting sound or something like really unexpected? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. The bird song people. We are like... Perhaps we, we could play this song on the radio, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, we are just enamored with the... Oh, goodness. I'm trying to remember. The Songbird no. Neuroethnology Lab. Yeah. Um, it was, it's a, primarily this one professor in psychology, as well as he has like some graduate students that were involved, and some of them are now doctors in their own right. And they recorded songbirds and sounds, primarily chickadees. And at some point, they decided they needed a theme song. And it's kind <laughs> of like West Coast punk meets metal. For this theme Meets song, chickadee. Meets chickadee. <laughs> like it is so bizarre and wonderful, and mm -hmm. it's just like I just love the idea that someone's like, our lab needs a theme song. So there are some really interesting projects going on in the Fem Lab space, and repurpose runs until April fifteenth in Assiniboine Hall at the University of Alberta campus. And now we're going to play ourselves out with a Phoebe song, a mix of heavy metal, electronica, and chickadee sounds created by the Songbird Neuroethology Lab on campus. Labs repurposed runs until the middle of April, so check it out at Assiniboia Hall. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to our special social justice and tech episode of Shout for Libraries on CJSR. And next we're going to hear from Joel, who has created a segment about Dr. Sophia Noble's 2018 book, Algorithms of Oppression. Here's Joel. Edmonton Public Library's forward-thinking speaker series, in partnership with the Edmonton Community Foundation, welcome Dr. Sophia Noble. Associate Professor at UCLA in the Departments of Information Studies and African American Studies for a presentation at the Chateau Lacombe Hotel later this month on February 20th. Noble has risen to prominence as a scholar at the interstices of media and communication studies, critical race studies, and library and information studies, particularly for her groundbreaking book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, published by NYU Press in 2018. Noble's talk for the series bears the same name as this book and promises to be an unmissable event for members of Edmonton's library and information community. In Algorithms of Oppression, Noble argues for increased scrutiny of the algorithms that increasingly power our online lives, with particular attention paid to Alphabet Inc.'s Google Search. Pushing beyond previous scholars of internet search engines, however, such as Siva Vadhyanathan, Lucas Introna, and Helen Niesenbaum, and Alexander Halavey, she brings an interdisciplinary black feminist theoretical approach to bear on questions of power and technology's inherent values. As she says, quoting Noble, I believe a black feminist lens, coupled with racial awareness about the intersectional aspects of identity, offers new ground and interpretations for understanding the implications of problematic positions about the benign instrumentality of technologies. 
Black feminist ways of knowing can look at searches on terms such as black girls and bring into the foreground evidence about the historical tendencies to misrepresent black women in the media. That was from page 31. Throughout the book, Noble consistently and convincingly attacks conceptions of search engine results as neutral, passive reflections of web users having voted with their clicks, instead asserting that the consistent surfacing of racist and sexist results, especially in relation to vulnerable, minority, racialized, and gendered identities, quote, reflects a corporate logic of either willful neglect or a profit imperative that makes money from racism and sexism online. That quote was from page five. Though Algorithms of Oppression is essential reading in its entirety, the chapter that is the most pertinent to an LIS context is its fifth one, The Future of Knowledge in the Public. Essentially, in this chapter, Noble traces some of the history of classification schemes, such as Dewey Decimal Classification, Library of Congress Classification, and the Library of Congress subject headings, their problematic history of exclusions, elisions, miscategorizations, through to contemporary search engine indexing practices. According to Noble, quote, the linkage between the indexing practices of the World Wide Web and the traditional classification systems of knowledge structures, such as the Library of Congress, is important. Both rely on human decisions, whether given over en masse to artificial intelligence and algorithms or left to human beings to catalog. The representation of people and cultures in information systems clearly reflects the social context within which the subjects exist. In the case of search engines, not unlike cataloging systems, the social context and histories of exploitation or objectification are not taken into explicit consideration. Rather, they are disavowed. What can be retrieved by information seekers is mediated by the technological system, be it a catalog or an index of web pages, by the system design that otherizes. In the case of the web, old cataloging and bibliometric practices are brought into the modern systems design. That was from page 144. Pertinent to LIS students at the University of Alberta, in this chapter, Noble also engages with the work of Hope A. Olson, faculty member at the University of Alberta's School of Library and Information Studies in the 1990s. Noble uses Olson's analyses, along with Sanford Berman's important work, to frame the trajectory of classification through to the commercial search context, demonstrating that search engines are just as equally value-laden socio-technologies as dominant library classification schemes. Overall, Algorithms of Oppression is, and has already proven to be, an extremely timely book in the age of platform capitalism due to its rousing calls for increased scrutiny and regulation of platforms, such as Alphabet Inc.'s Google. Noble's talk, presented by Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speaker Series in partnership with the Edmonton Community Foundation, will be of interest to anyone passionate about library and information studies, information retrieval, humanities computing, computer science, science and technology studies, critical race studies, and or media theory, among other domains, reflecting the vital interdisciplinarity of the work that she has undertaken. Tickets for the event can be found on eventbrite.ca and are $10. Thanks to Joel for that segment. 
If that was your jam, be sure to check out Dr. Sophia Noble's upcoming February 20th talk, hosted by Edmonton Public Libraries and the Edmonton Community Foundation as part of Freedom to Read Week. This is the first talk in the Forward Thinking Speaker Series event of 2019. Tickets are available on Eventbrite. If you are just tuning in, you're too late, because unfortunately this is the end of our show. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you to our interviewees, Kathleen Oliver and Sandy Hoy, for appearing on Shout for Libraries this month. Visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries or visit us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, Libraries. Once again, this has been Michelle. And Julia. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library-Centric Radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries and check, check it, it out. out.